It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we're walking up Earl's Terrace, a row of Georgian houses um, just off Kensington High Street. Really nice row of houses. Really nice row of houses. Did, did I tell you I found this document on Hansard? Yes. So it's a question asked in Parliament by yes. the then MP of the day. It's 1976, so it's earlier. But in it, he's concerned about the amount of properties owned by the Soviet embassy at the time. But he also references properties in the borough that they believe are owned by people working for the Soviet embassy. And in it, he mentions three properties on Earl's Terrace and says they are 9, 10 and 11 Earl's Terrace. 9, 10 and 11, which we are looking at just now. So they, they were used to house both um, actual Soviet diplomats and, as we know, KGB agents pretending to be diplomats. How amazing to think you know, that Alexander and Evgeny lived in one of these houses and this was their first residence in London and that they would stay for so long. I wonder if it was like suddenly coming to Kensington and moving into one of these beautiful Georgian houses. I'm never going to be able to answer my own question. I did a quick search this morning, and one of these houses is up for sale at £9,950,000. Earl's Terrace is at the heart of Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev's story. It's where their long relationship with London began, where Alexander was sent to live on his first serious foreign posting as a KGB agent more than 40 years ago. It's where Evgeny spent his first years in London. And the part of London where it sits is also a kind of character in this story, the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea. When the Russian oligarchs invaded London, this was where they landed. This was where they wanted to be, a stone's throw from Hyde Park, round the corner from Harrods and the Royal Albert Hall. So many of the big moments in the Lebedev's lives happened within this borough, within a tiny corner of it, in fact. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is episode two of Londongrad. (laughs) 
so let me first introduce myself. Uh, I'm a former, but that's been 26 years, officer of Soviet foreign intelligence, which is public knowledge. Alexander Lebedev plays down his KGB past. He says it was all a long time ago, and that, in any case, it wasn't really up to him. He once said he didn't choose to join. He agreed. But, and perhaps this isn't surprising for a former KGB officer, he's not quite telling the whole truth. Alexander grew up in a small apartment near the Kremlin. And when I say small, I'm talking six metres by six metres. It was an improvement on the family's previous home in Moscow, a communal apartment on Automotive Factory Street. Even though his parents were professors, his father of engineering, his mother of history and English, Alexander, just like everyone else in 1960s Moscow, had to queue. Hours in line to buy cheese, sausage or frozen fish. At school, he says he got bad marks for behaviour, but good ones for his academic work. Good enough for entry to the economics program at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, a recruitment ground for the KGB. And Alexander had the qualities of a good agent. He spoke English and a bit of Spanish. He was intelligent and through years of playing water polo, athletic. Hello, come on in. Thank you. My name's Roderick Braithwaite and I really spent most of my professional life dealing with Russia in one way or another. Sir Roderick is being modest. The Foreign Office first sent him to Moscow in the 1960s and he ended up as the UK's ambassador there from 1988 to 1991. Over tea and chocolate digestive biscuits, Sir Roderick gave me the backdrop to Alexander Lebedev's recruitment to the KGB. They really believed that they were the guardians of the state. Without them, the state would fall apart. It may sound ridiculous to us, but that, that is what a lot of them believed. It's what Putin believed. It's why he wanted to join the KGB. They were super patriots. Now, that's how they regarded themselves. Of course, for a lot of other people whose relations had been shipped off to camps or shot or whatever or who wanted to publish books which were not allowed to publish and were harassed in various ways. It didn't quite look like that at all. For Alexander, the KGB must have had some kind of patriotic appeal. Or maybe, as he suggested, he had no real choice but to join it. I think that's an exaggeration. Of course he had a choice. Um, nobody was going to force him into the KGB at that point. But there are other arguments. Uh, one is that the one that our people use when they're trying to recruit us. You know, are you a patriot or not? It's a very powerful argument. Did anyone ever ask you that? They did once. I turned them down. There was also a very strong argument, very powerful argument, that if you're in the KGB and get a job abroad, particularly if it's a job in the West, you get all sorts of perks. You live far better than you would back home. You can buy things you can't buy in Moscow. For Alexander, those material benefits mattered. Soon after enrolling at the Institute, he met his wife, Natalia Sokolova, who was training to be a microbiologist. She was a brunette, tall and very beautiful. And just a year later, in 1980, these two students, Natalia and Alexander, had their only child, Evgeny. 
Alexander was just 20 years old when he became a father. Sometimes, Natalia's father, a highly accomplished zoology professor, would take this young family along on expeditions to places as far as Bolivia and Vietnam, but generally, things were a hard struggle. The KGB could offer him financial stability, but there were still other ways of making money, even in Soviet Russia, than joining the KGB. I would say nobody joined it by accident. And in the age of Yuri Andropov, there was no ambiguity about what the KGB had been and still was and the extent of its grip on power in the Kremlin. This is Kevin Connolly. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, for a total of about seven years, I was the BBC's correspondent behind the Iron Curtain. Yuri Andropov was the leader of the Soviet Union who had been the head of the KGB and who was an absolute hardliner. He helped in the crushing of the Hungarian uprising in 56. He helped in the crushing of the Prague Spring. He is a man who I think is largely responsible for the idea of using the mental hospital system to cage dissidents. But the real point is that he shows you as clearly as does Putin that there is an extremely intense and integrated relationship between the KGB leadership and the leadership of the country inside the Kremlin. So, it wasn't just about money and perks. Joining the KGB was also about patriotism and power. And Alexander would have to display his dedication to the cause before gaining the real perks. Here's how Alexander describes this period from the 1980s. I put in the hours, took on extra work, burned the midnight oil, and the fruit of my labours was a certificate of commendation from the director of the KGB. So he went from doing translations to the Foreign Intelligence Division. In 1988, he was sent on his first serious posting. The Soviet embassy in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, on a street now known as Billionaire's Row. Yes. There's, there's no camera, no photograph allowed on this road. If you wish to take any video or anything, it has to be done just outside from the uh, gate. Okay, we're not, no cameras. When there's no camera or uh, and we're not you, taking you, any yeah, images, you, just you, sound. You cannot do the, the thing as well, yeah. We can't record? You cannot. Why not? It's not allowed on this road, the press. The press aren't allowed on this on road. road? Yeah, that's the, uh, the Crown uh, State law. Kensington Palace Gardens is home to some of the most expensive properties in the capital, and it's apparently subject to a set of rules that mean you can't walk down it with a microphone. We walk down it anyway, just without recording. It's a quiet street, just a few cars, and the odd walker. It backs onto Kensington Palace, where the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge live. And, right on cue, as we walk down the road, Prince William passed us in a cavalcade of black Range Rovers. We went past Roman Abramovich's 15-bedroom mansion, now valued at £150 million. But his isn't the only house on the street owned by a wealthy Russian. And this isn't the only road where they've set up home. Across the Royal Borough, there are vast mansions belonging to oligarchs. In the past five years alone, 
Russians accused of corruption or with Kremlin ties bought 283 million pounds worth of property here. So we've just come on a footpath away from Holland Park to an area where there are a large number of fairly new build luxury apartments and townhouses. Kensington has, perhaps unsurprisingly, the most anonymously owned property in the country. Uh, we have the highest house prices in the country. We also have the highest inequality level in the country. Um, one in four kids growing up in poverty and we have four of the top ten most expensive streets in England. This is Joe Powell, a Kensington resident and founder of a campaign group called Kensington Against Dirty Money. So it's a borough where, you know, a lot of people with extreme wealth have been attracted for, for many years. And also the house prices are pretty insulated here. So if you buy an expensive luxury property, you can be pretty sure that that's not going to decrease in value. So it's a, it's a great asset to own. At the beginning of this episode, I dodged my own question about what it must have been like for Alexander to suddenly find himself at a beautiful and expensive Georgian house in Kensington. But Kevin's got a good answer to it. I always try to explain it to people by saying that crossing the Iron Curtain going east, as I did, was like having a coloured television set all your life and then suddenly having to watch a black and white one. I imagine if you're the young Alexander Lebedev starting your first foreign postings for the KGB... It's exactly the same, but the other way around. Like suddenly having a colour TV, everything is more vivid, everything is more prosperous, everything is more comfortable, everything is safer, cars are better, food is better, supermarkets are better stocked, the streetlights are brighter, private houses are more brightly lit. There's almost nothing that isn't different. Just a short walk from their Earl's Terrace house, at the embassy... Alexander says his job was to read the newspapers for signs that capitalism was failing. But KGB officers weren't sent to London just to read the papers. It was a posting reserved for the best. What Alexander really did there was monitor things. Arms control negotiations, trade talks, NATO and British politicians. Outside the office, Alexander drove Russia's new rich around in his little Ford car. Some of them even stayed at his house. Men like Sergei Rodionov, a central banker, and Oleg Boyko, who sold used American computers to Russians. His embassy colleagues remember him as solitary, doing his analysis alone in a secure room at the top of the building. At the frequent boozy parties, Alexander would stay in a corner, concentrated on his own thoughts, not dancing or joking. At the time, Alexander earned a few hundred pounds a month, but he saw how these men spend their money in clubs and restaurants, waving wads of cash around. It was, he said, an eye-opener. The men splashing the cash were the new rich, born of Mikhail Gorbachev's market reforms. Gorbachev is key to Alexander's story. Somehow, after much lobbying, Alexander was given an audience with him when the Soviet leader was in town for a meeting with Margaret Thatcher. It took place at two in the morning, in a room thick with cigarette smoke and full of jammers trying to frustrate any attempts at bugging. 
and Alexander took his chance to warn Gorbachev that the Soviet Union was about to default on its national debt. The 20 other Soviet envoys and spies in the room remained silent, but Alexander made an impression on Gorbachev, because his prediction turned out to be accurate. Eleven Soviet republics agreed to form a new Commonwealth of Independent States today and consigned the Soviet Union to history. They abolished Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1991, the Soviet Union effectively declared bankruptcy. Within a week, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus announced the Union's end. A few weeks later, Gorbachev gave his farewell address. After six and a half years in power, Mikhail Gorbachev confirmed his resignation on television tonight. Alexander was by now a lieutenant colonel and still under diplomatic cover in London. But the KGB, it's now morphed into the FSB. It was against FSB rules to start opening businesses while posted abroad. But Alexander is keen to throw himself into capitalism. And he does it anyway. He called one of his companies Millet, a mashup of make a million in a minute. Soon, he finds himself placed under investigation by the FSB's counterintelligence division, accused of what he says are unfounded suspicions of an affair with the wife of a senior diplomat. But really, it was the businesses he opened that got him recalled to Moscow in 1992. And that was a blessing in disguise. Because in that moment, Russia offered riches like no other place on earth for those able to seize them. Could you, could you describe what, what it would have then been like for, for people who were part of the KGB, part of the state apparatus, to suddenly find themselves in that chaotic Russia? It was an extraordinarily difficult moment. I think nobody who lives in what we used to call the free world has ever experienced anything quite like it. But if you had been overseas like Alexander Lebedev, spying on your country's enemies, gathering information, uh, defending the system, the idea that suddenly it has disintegrated must have been extremely psychologically difficult. Except for this... Alexander Lebedev is quite an unusual sort of KGB officer. You know, we think of assassins and people buying nuclear secrets. He's an economics expert. I mean, he has a rather unusual academic specialisation for a Russian in that he does actually understand the global economy and the debt mechanisms that the global economy uses. After a moment of shock has passed, a certain type of person within the KGB is going to realise that they are better placed than almost anybody to benefit from this. Then Alexander Lebedev clearly has the means, has the experience, has the intelligence to spot and seize a great new opportunity. There is money there to be taken out of the old system and transferred into personal wealth. The Lebedevs were back in Moscow. But in Evgeny's case, not for long.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When eight-year-old Evgeny first arrived in London, his parents pulled him out of the Soviet Embassy Academy and enrolled him in a small Church of England school, a three-minute walk from Earl's Terrace, St. Barnabas and St. Philip's. Evgeny recalled, It was a very pleasant experience, because I was very much accepted by the other pupils. On the weekends, they would visit Seacock's Heath, a 19th-century pile in Kent that was the Soviet Embassy's country house. And then, they'd all head down to Hastings on the Sussex coast, for the fairs, beach, and Mr. Whippy ice creams. On other trips, the Lebedevs went to Blackpool. Some call it tacky, Evgeny has said, but I call it perfect. These halcyon days ended when Alexander was abruptly recalled to Moscow. For Evgeny, it meant a short time back in Russia, before being sent back to London as a boarder at Mill Hill School. One said his time there was happy, but another teacher remembered a quiet, almost anonymous boy. The kind who gave his politics master a tie, perhaps in the hope of better grades. A friend from later on reckons Evgeny was lonely, that he had to bring himself up, and that does things to you psychologically. After Mill Hill, he went to learn art history at Christie's Auction House, a course popular with the aimless offspring of the very wealthy. He soon left. He had no job, no programme of study. So he started going out. And I went round there. If Gary was there, he was sweaty and tubby. Nicky Haslam recalls meeting him around this time in London. And his hands were completely wet. He was so nervous. His hands dripped. And he was very shy and very sweet. Evgeny was there with Ella Krasner, the glamorous wife of some Russian steel tycoon, who'd one day tell a court that she needed £24,000 a week for necessities. But on the London party circuit, Evgeny was more usually linked with Andy Wong, who's from a wealthy Hong Kong family and known for throwing lavish and camp parties. This was now Evgeny's world. 
socialites and heirs, clubs and champagne. London's new international rich. It was a far cry from the Lebedev's days in a communal apartment in Moscow. That decision to join the KGB back in the 80s, it's gone well. The one thing that is important to bear in mind is that the KGB, the old KGB, particularly the first chief director, which is foreign intelligence, which has now become the SVR, was the elite of Soviet society. I mean, these were the best educated people, the best linguists. They were people that were able to travel abroad. They were the nomenclatura, they were the elite. Here's Chris Steele, who headed MI6's Russia desk. Therefore, it's not perhaps that surprising that they were able to reinvent themselves um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union into being business folk and lawyers and press barons and journalists or whatever they happened to become. In truth, a very small number of people benefited from this period's shock economic liberalisation. The Ollies. The oligarchs um, were what I would describe as the sharpest elbowed people. This is Bill Browder, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia before he was expelled for campaigning against corruption. When I went out there, I, I started investing in shares of newly privatized companies. These were kind of like the crumbs that fell off the table that the oligarchs didn't get hold of. And those crumbs were incredibly valuable as well. Some of these crumbs were shares in Gazprom, which is still one of the world's largest gas companies. It was a cesspool of corruption, badly run, and its gas reserves were stolen freely by insiders. From the beginning, it was largely controlled by the Kremlin, and it still is today. Bill's strategy was to buy Gazprom shares, then lobby for corporate governance reform, which would raise their price. That's how he first met Alexander. He's a charming man. He's, he's um, you know, very urbane, um, uh, sophisticated, speaks English perfectly with, with a sort of uh, KGB-trained English accent. You can spot these KGB guys because they all have the same English accent. They must have all gone to the same language institute. Well-dressed, very great host, charming. You know, he, he, he fits the bill of a billionaire oligarch. Bill began investing in Russia the same year, 1995, that Alexander bought his bank. Alexander Lebedev was the owner of, of a, a mid-sized bank called National Reserve Bank. And as far as I could tell, the main asset of the bank was a large shareholding of Gazprom. And so every year um, before the annual general meeting of Gazprom, we would go to him and ask him if he would vote his shares um, for our candidate for the board of Gazprom on the anti-corruption ticket. And uh, every year we had very sort of, I would call, engaged conversations with him. Um, and I believe that in some years he actually voted with us. I see. So he was, he was on the good side. Um, well, he, he was certainly um, flirting with the good side, um, being on the good side. I mean, so how did he end up owning this bank and ending yes. up with all this gas for? I don't know. I can't imagine that that it was through graft and hard work, but uh, um, but you know, maybe it was. Who knows? Maybe uh, minimum wage uh, uh, or uh, through crafty investments. Um, but but he ended up owning a lot of Gazprom. How much do you like? Are we talking H hundreds of millions of dollars? Um, maybe even more. Maybe a oh. billion dollars of Gazprom. Oh. Alexander says he acquired the bank through an open tender and made his billions because he is a financial Mozart. I'm not so sure. 
do you think that could have happened without um without his connections to to former KGB officers my own view is no my opinion is that networking is fundamental to understanding how the shakedown of the Russian economy happened in the 1990s i mean this is not a normal economy we're talking about we're talking about mass privatization which was hugely exploited by a small number of people at the top alexander in fact made the money used to buy his bank by trading bonds in a market controlled by former senior soviet officials remember the men alexander used to drive around london in his small ford car those are now the officials with the access and connections that alexander needs his new bank bought loans that soviet russia had previously made to foreign entities and it acquired gazprom shares and at every stage there's a link to the fsb of former soviet officials alexander's past mattered at some point alexander even tried buying a statue of the man who founded the kgb felix zhersinsky to sit in the bank's lobby it had been toppled from its perch in lubyanka square as the red flag fell by the late 1990s alexander had separated from his wife natalia and his bank had become one of the biggest in russia money changed him after one party at natalia's father's flat in moscow she ran out onto the street crying he's a terrible man she said a terrible man he was on his way to the billionaires club but in the background there was another former kgb lieutenant colonel whose star was rising vladimir putin who'd been the fsb's director was now prime minister and he wanted more seeing himself as sir rodrik had said as a super patriot putin played on ordinary russians desire for order amid the economic chaos of the time for me the great watershed is the apartment bombings of 1999 where several blocks of flats in moscow and elsewhere were blown up killing hundreds of russians and the blame was put on the chechens and used as a justification for a che- second chechen war and whipping up nationalism and putin's path to power whereas most of us who have looked studied this carefully strongly believe that the fsb themselves were behind the apartment bombings and it was a provocation or a false flag operation as as we call it in our business the bombings caused panic across russia and residents took to checking their basements for bombs When a suspicious device was found under one block, it seemed that terrorist attack had been thwarted. But when local police arrested the three men who'd planted it, it was revealed they were FSB agents. The FSB claimed it was a terror drill and that the device's powder-like substance wasn't a military-grade explosive, but sugar. Putin's reaction to the bombings made him out to be the strongman Russians wanted at this moment. His popularity soared and within a few months in Russia today the clear winner of the Russian presidential election Vladimir Putin began to establish the Putin era Vladimir Putin the career spy talks about establishing what he calls a dictatorship of the law fight corrupt bureaucrats and strengthen the central He became Russia's president He tightened his grip on the economy through the control of ostensibly independent oligarchs and of its media with particularly fateful consequences for Alexander. 
In 2007, he was already a billionaire, with most of his $3.5 billion fortune tied up in Gazprom shares. But as Bill Browder explains... There's no such thing as being independently wealthy in Russia. Every oligarch can be destroyed in, in a fraction of a second by an administrative decision by Vladimir Putin. They can either have their wealth taken away, their freedom taken away, or their life taken away. And so it's a very complex game to be an oligarch. Um, I don't think it's nearly as simple as the, as we, we sort of painted in the West. I mean, all of them are sort of try, trying different strategies to keep some wealth. They have to share some wealth, trying to stay out of jail, trying to stay ahead of their enemies. One of his former journalist employees told me Alexander was always playing multiple chess games. The strategy was loyalty to Putin on one hand and a pro-Western image as a form of protection on the other. So oligarchs in Russia, people who owned banks, people who owned oil companies, people who owned other things, would buy newspapers and TV stations um, not because they made money, but to buy them to gain political influence. It was a difficult game. Alexander owned a business weekly called Compania, but had to fire its editor after the paper criticised Putin's handling of the Beslan school siege, in which 333 people were killed. Next, he bought a large share in the liberal newspaper Novoya Gazeta, a paper famed for its investigative journalism. Then, in autumn 2007, Alexander founded the Moskovsky Correspondent. It was a sensationalist tabloid, and if the liberal Novoya Gazeta was risky in Putin's Russia, this was to prove even more problematic. In April 2008, it reported allegations that Vladimir Putin was about to leave his wife Ludmila for a Russian gymnast less than half his age, called Alina Kabaeva. It was one step too far. The tightrope Alexander always tried to walk snapped. He was forced to fire his tabloids editor, issue an apology, and then close his newspaper altogether, all within a week. Under siege in Russia, Alexander turned to London to diversify his risk. He found himself back where we began, in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea, and he chose a strategy that would catapult Evgeny into the heart of Britain's establishment. That's all in episode three of Londongrad. Thank you for listening to Londongrad. This series is reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. The producer is Katie Gunning. The sound designer is Tom Kinsella. The editor is Kerry Thomas. I hope you are enjoying the series. I have been reporting on the corrosive effects of illicit money coming into Europe since I joined Tortoise four years ago now. If you're not already a Tortoise member, I'd love to invite you to join to get early access to my investigations, to all our slow and considered journalism, as well as invites to exclusive newsroom events. To join Tortoise as a member, use my code PAUL50 for half-price membership for £50 per year. Visit tortoisemedia.co.uk slash londongrad. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.